Hi, this is Caden, and this is my daddy's podcast called Lasting Learning. Welcome to Lasting Learning, the podcast that was started because I thought I had things to say. The podcast that continues to grow because we've learned that your stories matter more. Welcome to Lasting Learning, where we explore great people doing extraordinary things, sharing with us the lasting lessons they've learned along the way. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Lasting Learning Podcast. Today is a real treat because this is going to be an out-of-this-world conversation. I've got a real superstar joining us today. He's a guy joining me from uh, across the border, from outer space. I'm not quite sure how our signal is navigating things right now, but I'm sure he'll break it down for us and he'll explain how all of this crazy stuff works. He's he's an educator. He's been a teacher for, I, I'm going to probably date him a little bit. I'm going to say he's in his third decade of teaching, although it's 25 yeah. plus years. He is joining us from Canada. So we know he's extremely nice and hospitable and intelligent. And uh, he, he gets paid in Canadian tire dollars and all of those <laughs> sorts of things. He is absolutely amazing. I follow his journey and I'm super excited to introduce him to all of you. Tim Stevenson. Tim, thank you so, so much for being here today, man. Super awesome. I'm super happy to be here. It's going to be great. Uh, you are going to teach me a ton. You know, I try to bring people on the show who will inspire me, who can teach me, who can challenge me, who can push me. And you're going to do all of those things. So I'm a little nervous. I'm extremely excited. I'm also geeked because I know that when we're done here, I'm going to go have some conversations with my kids and just blow their minds with how smart yes. I'm going to appear. So I'm excited for this, Tim. You're going to get smarter. I guarantee <laughs> it. That's my goal is you're going to be smarter about space by the time we're done here. Sounds good, man. So, so Tim, <laughs> there might be a couple of people listening who aren't quite sure who you are or what you do yet. So if you, can you just yeah. unpack that for us and let people know what you're doing? Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm a high school teacher in Langley, British Columbia, west coast of uh, Canada. And um, I've been teaching for, yeah, I guess I said my 27th, 28th year. And uh, for the large part, I've, I've uh, done junior science and, and senior chemistry. But a good chunk of that time, I've developed an astronomy course. So I teach about space. Um, I, I like to tell my students that, um, you know, we're going to start close. We're going to learn about Earth and the moon. And we're going to keep expanding further and further away to the planets and then the stars and ultimately the universe and maybe even get into things like where did it all start and how do we know about this and that and how far away things are. Anyway, it's, the, it's an all-encompassing course. So I've kind of become known as Astro Stevenson in my school and kids take the course because, you know, honestly, space is not a hard sell. It's an easy thing to teach because kids are just naturally curious about it. Now, okay, is it one of those courses where you can just make stuff up because nobody can really prove you wrong? Or do you actually have to know this stuff? Well, you know, 17% of all statistics are made up on the spot, right? You know that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <I love> it. <laughs> um, it, is, it is one of the greatest questions of space is how do they know that to be true? 
you weren't there, it was too far away, it was too long ago. So there are ways that people have learned about space. Uh, and that's one of the things I try to uncover for the students is how do we actually know that? So let, let's unpack your curiosity uh, of space. I, I can imagine as a, a young child, you, you were probably one of those kids that used to just, uh, stare at the stars and try to make sense of it all and make up your own stories or were you always inquisitive or is this something that came later on in life? Well, honestly, it, it probably started in Florida, quite frankly. Uh, in 1973, we took a family trip down from, I was living at the time in Southern Ontario, and we took a family trip in spring break to uh, Florida, to Disney World, but we also stopped at uh, Cape Canaveral. And we went and saw the, the Kennedy Space Center, and uh, I was hooked. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm old enough that I'm, I'm a child of the Apollo era. Now, I don't remember the moon landings. I, I, I was alive during them, but I don't really remember them. Uh, but I do have a, a vague recollection of a great fear that, because I would hear them say, the astronauts on return have a very uh, narrow angle of attack that if they come in too steep, they'll burn up like a shooting star. And if they come in too shallow, they'll skip off and back out into space. And that was, I do recall that being a very frightening thought as a young boy. Uh, but uh, I was always interested in space. And I think Neil Armstrong was one of my boyhood heroes. And I still consider him one of my all-time favorite um, space people. And uh, I, I think by the time I got to be teaching, I realized that um, students love to learn things that they're connected to. And they, they latch on to emotional issues and there's an emotional attachment to the, to the stars. We write songs about them. We write poems about them. We gaze at them just because it makes us feel better. And if you can teach a course on it and get your science credit that way, I, I just felt all along that kids would probably buy into it. And, and they did. That's pretty cool. You know, we could geek out right now and talk about transference and connections and how we, when we connect to something and experience, we, we have that emotional attachment to it. We can learn it and the, the learning lasts a whole lot longer than visceral connections and basic recall. I'm not going to go there, but we do have that connection. Fievel told mm -hmm. us back in an American tale back in 1991, when he's saying about uh, being under the same star and under the same moon, we all have that connection. We all look up at the stars. We all see the same things and have the same wondering. So I love that you're able to try to make sense of all of these things. I'm hoping that you can try to make sense of something for me. I'm going to be asking a lot of dumb questions today. So go for it. I apologize. I love it. You, you, you talked about the idea of spacecraft possibly burning up. And this is truly a, a legit question that I have had now for 40 something years, because we hear this all the time on how the re-entry from space is probably the most dangerous part. Once, once they leave the tower and they're actually accelerating, the re-entry is the most dangerous. Mm -hmm. I've never understood this concept. So Taking us back 15 years ago, I went skydiving. I jumped out of a plane and I was free falling. I didn't feel hot. I didn't no. feel like I was going to burn up and I was falling through the atmosphere. What's the difference between me parachuting and a spacecraft re-entering? Well, you would have been falling at somewhere around 120 miles an hour, uh, maybe 180 kilometers an hour. Whereas the spacecraft are entering the atmosphere from an, from an air pressure of zero, you know, in space, there really is effectively no air pressure. And they're traveling at speeds of, of around 17,000 miles per hour. Now, you compare 17,000 to 120, you aren't going very fast. And they are. They're going very quickly. And uh, so when they hit that atmosphere, 
um, they really feel some G forces as they're slowing down and that, that energy is dissipated in the form of heat. So they've got to be very careful with their heat shielding and their angle of attack. It, it could go horribly wrong. And in fact, it has gone horribly wrong in, in, in certain situations. So I think that's fascinating. First of all, kudos to you throwing miles per hour out there like it's your natural lingo. Well played, <laughs> sir. I mean, I'm super impressed. Okay, so it's not just friction. It's not just the the the, the rubbing against the atmosphere that's causing the heat. No, it is. is. It really is. Uh, okay. It really is friction that's causing okay. the heat. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But because I was going so slow, um, I didn't burn up. Okay. You Fair. weren't going that fast comparatively. You know, John yeah. F. Kennedy uh, said in 62, when he challenged the Americans to really NASA to put a man on the moon before the decade was out, he said in that famous speech at Rice University that, uh, I, I love the quote, we choose to go to the moon, not because it's easy. We choose to go because it's hard. And what a great accomplishment nationally it will be for our people to be able to say, we did this first. But he did also say that we choose to do this at a time when we don't have a rocket capable of doing it. We don't even have the metal alloys capable of withstanding the pressures and the forces. And we, and we know that when we return, the, the surface of our spacecraft will achieve half the temperature of the surface of the sun. And we don't know how to do that either. What an amazing challenge that President Kennedy put before the people. And by golly, in seven years, they did it. You know, and they got Neil and Buzz on the moon in July of 1969. It's just an incredible story. That, that is really remarkable. I mean, and it's fascinating as, as an American, the sense of pride that, really? that we still have and we still carry with us for, for that journey. As a Canadian, do, do you attach yourself to that, to that, the American dream? Do you wish that there was a Canadian Space Force? Like, how, do, how does all of that play out? Well, we do have a Canadian Space Agency. We don't have rockets. We don't launch. We, we supply. But um, honestly, I, I, I've, I'm a big, big fan of the space race of the 60s. I was, I'm, not, I'm not in touch enough with American politics to uh, express any sort of commentary on President Kennedy. But that man could give a speech. And I loved his speeches. And um, uh, he could deliver and motivate a nation to action. And I just think it's a great, a great story to unfold in front of Canadian students, no, let alone American students, just because we're doing this, uh, we're taking this challenge on, we're not picking the easy way, uh, we're going to do it and then to actually pull it off. Uh, I just, I just love it. So uh, from the Canadian side of the border, I, I still am highly, highly inspired by an American story of the space race. So cool. And for the record, I'm highly inspired by you north of the border. I mean, you, you teach things beyond the classroom, pun intended there, where we want, we want kids to not just learn things for the sake of knowing things in school, but to really be able to take things beyond the classroom, learn them in the real world. Mm -hmm. in, in your class, I'm focusing really on astronomy right now. I know you teach a lot of science classes here, but really specifically with astronomy, what is the goal in teaching that? Is it just so that kids can go outside and find the zodiac at night or um, identify craters on the moon or is there a bigger goal well i think there's a bigger goal um i i like the uh i, I like the quote fa very famous quote by stephen hawking when he says um um look up at the stars not down at your feet and be curious 
um, I, I just think that that's what I'm going for right here. It's uh, as you mentioned, uh, you could look at the stars in the moon at night in Florida. I could look at them in British Columbia. We're looking at the same stars, maybe from a slightly different angle, but we're looking at the same thing. So what, what I teach unfolds before everybody every night, no matter where you are geographically. And, um, and I think there's something unifying about that. I think there's something very um, calming and there's something to do with, I think, I believe there's a lot of um, mental wellness and that I can look up at the stars and feel comfort in knowing that I'm connected to the rest of the planet this way. And so I do try to bring these elements out for sure in my classes. Um, I, want, I want students to um, learn about the stars and uh, because there's a sense of accomplishment uh, that I, they, they can go out there and identify things. I like to say to them, I want you to be the smart person in the conversation. I want you to be the interesting person. I want you to grab your mom by the arm and drag her outside. Mom, you got to see this. Because what I've learned in school today is amazing. And it's sitting right up above our house right now. And I want to show you, I want to tell you the name of that star, the name of that constellation. And I want the adults to say to these kids, how do you know all this? This is fascinating stuff. And then they feel good about themselves because they leave my classroom as the student and they go home as the teacher. And I love that. And there's, there's very definitely an opportunity for that to happen. Um, I don't get them all. I, I get, a, I get a, quite a few, but I don't get them all to buy in as, as that much. But uh, whenever I hear stories from parents, parent-teacher interviews, I just can't believe what I've learned from your, from your class. Um, I, I take great joy in that. My, my, um, my battery alarm is going off right now. Can I just go shut that off? For sure. Absolutely. It, it happens. Can you hear that? It's all good. It's all good. For it again. Go for it. Explain what just happened. This is this is the real world here. So okay, this this is this is the real world, and this is another. See, to me, if a kid's going to come to school, he's got to learn stuff that's going to affect his future. And I just feel that everything that has happens in a classroom has to have a, a future value. Now, for example, uh, what just happened there was my alarm went off, which is uh, I have a battery pack over in the corner of my classroom. It's connected to some solar panels up on the roof. I had said to the school district a couple of years, mom, oh boy, five or six years ago, that what we need to do is demonstrate to the students how we can generate energy in a way that's not going to have as much of a negative effect on the climate. And so I thought, if I got a solar powered classroom, that would be a symbolic gesture, a way that I could teach them that energy can be derived from the sun. You know, we think about nuclear fusion and nuclear fission. We have a nuclear generator in the sky. Why don't we take advantage of it? And so um, I have the solar panel, it charges these batteries. They run the lights in my classroom. And I, today it happens to be rainy and cloudy. And so I guess they weren't getting the juice that they needed. And my batteries just, and they alarm, they go off an alarm and when, when they get too low in their charge. So that's what happened. Oh, that's amazing though. I, I, I love that that actually happened. So we could share that, that little piece of you <laughs> and your passion with modeling, yeah. modeling your, your intended outcomes in real life. I, I absolutely love that. Um, mm -hmm. in, in terms of that curiosity. So you're sparking curiosity with kids. You're, you're sparking this, this new excitement for kids to go out there and be the smartest person in the conversation to, to be the person that knows more. I, I imagine that you at a dinner party, um, you're pretty entertaining. I'm sure a lot of people want to just come around and, and have conversations with you and let you teach them. Do you find your, yourself 
talking to a lot of adults and just talking space nonstop with people? Yes, <laughs> I do. Um, the very, very often, uh, if there's a cul-de-sac barbecue and all the families are gathering together, it's, hey, Tim, have you got a, have you got your telescope handy? My kids want to see the moon or they want to see Jupiter. Well, quite frankly, that happens a lot, but I love it. I, I truly love an opportunity to teach about space. It's, I find it fascinating and I love to share that information with anybody who wants to ask. <laughs> I think my wife gets kind of tired of it, but. Well, then I'm going to start asking then. We're, going to, okay. we're just going to be hanging out here at a, at a dinner party. It's a, it's, a, it's a little barbecue right now. We're just hanging out. Sure. So our solar system, it's, it's pretty cool. We could have the Pluto as a planet debate if we want to. I'm not going to go there. I feel like that's okay. low hanging fruit. I'm more, I'm more intrigued by outside of the solar system, outside of the Milky Way, this, this idea of the ever expanding universe. My mind cannot wrap itself around this concept. Yeah. How in the world can things just keep going with no end? And I know you don't necessarily have an answer, or maybe you do. I don't know. Yeah. How does the universe keep expanding? And then is there an end? Yeah, um, it, it seems that there's there's not. Um, and one of the harder things to understand is that when you think about the expanding universe, what people tend to picture is whatever it is that they can understand. And so I can understand that in a classroom, it's a space, this is space, and there's something small in the middle and it can expand, but eventually it'll hit the walls and it will stop. But really the expansion of the universe is to be thought of slightly differently in that it's not an empty void that's being filled. It, it's implying that space is being created as it expands. So it's an expansion of what's already there. It's not filling something that's empty and soon it will be full and it'll have to stop. And so there, there therefore is really no edge to space. Um, the theories are bouncing around. They've been doing so for 40 years or so that perhaps this is just one of a multi multitude of universes. I tend to shy away from those theories because it implies that if I can't really understand this universe, how are you expecting me to wrap my mind around multiple universes? But there are a, a significant number of astronomers who are dabbling with this idea that the universe that we live in is just one of many. I'm, I, I don't really go down that path too often, though. So, so that, that, that is fascinating. And, and I'm, I'm actually afraid to ask this follow-up because every single time I start talking space, I feel myself getting anxious. Mm -hmm. A, because there's some, so many things I don't know. And then when I start to learn about things, I start to to hear about like doomsday scenarios. The sun yeah. is going to blow up and we're all going to die. These unknown asteroids are, are heading our direction. I, I think deep impact and Armageddon. Is space to be feared or are we safe here? Well, I think we're safe here um, in so much as whatever is orbiting the sun and perhaps in a collision course with earth has been doing so for four and a half billion years. It hasn't hit us yet. So just because we discover it doesn't imply that now that we know about it, it's going to hit us. Um, there's nothing really imminently uh, heading our way. Now it has happened in the past. I mean, 65 million years ago, the earth seems to show evidence that it was struck by a very large asteroid and end of the dinosaurs. But um, 
is the universe to be feared? I don't think so, in my opinion. I, although I have heard of people who are who don't like to think about the concept of infinity, um, uh, the concept of what is the middle of forever. So if the universe extends infinitely that way and infinitely that way, it kind of implies I'm in the middle. But if it's infinite, then there really is no middle. So what's the middle of forever? I think the universe can be um, awe-inspiring and it can in in sort of um, engender curiosity and um, exploration and discussion. I think it's a great uh, campfire topic to bat around. And um, if you know a little bit about it, then you can sort of share ideas. But is it, it, it's no doubt, no doubt. I've known people, including some of my students who've said, I, I don't really want to talk about this because it kind of scares me. It's just so large and so vast. And so in a lot of ways, it's uh, not understandable. So I try my best to make it as understandable as possible. Well, I, I've got a deeper question I'm going to hold off on. But I, okay. before I go there, Star Trek or Star Wars? Are you a fan of either one? And which one's more realistic? I, I am actually a, a fan of those. Um, I, I think Star Trek was revolutionary in that you had a, a show that ran for three seasons and almost everything that they had, we now have, uh, except for warp drive. We don't have any warp drive and dilithium crystals aren't really a thing either. Uh, but but it, it, it changed television, it changed entertainment, it got people thinking about space, it got people questioning and, and everything that we see around us in te technologically was really, uh, uh, science fiction at first and it became science reality and i think star trek is an inspiration that way star wars um is, is highly highly entertaining a great story um obviously great imagination out of a guy like george lucas but um you know pretty pretty uh, pretty far-fetched uh, uh, in space planes flying around like airplanes that this would never happen. so honestly there are there's a certain amount of me watching going you know that could never actually happen you know the guy beside hey you know we just that wouldn't actually happen that way and they say shut up it's just a movie <laughs> that's awesome you are the buzzkill at the movie theater but you're the life of the party in the cul-de-sac barbecue <laughs> yeah awesome. exactly love it the guy with the telescope so space talk okay i'm gonna spin this back and start talking about space versus the classroom. So as an astronomer, uh, a man who loves learning about the universe, the infinite universe, the never ending universe, the constantly expanding universe. When I start thinking about those things, I think about my own insignificance. I don't know if that's the fair word to use, but how small I am in the grand scheme of things. You know, I, I go around my daily life and I, I tend to think everybody's thinking about me. Everybody cares about me. Everybody sees me. When I start thinking space, in the universe, the galaxies, I remember how small I am. You are a, a teacher. By, by trade, by craft, by passion, you are a destiny changer. You are there to help kids recognize their significance. Mm -hmm. How does that balance with this idea that we are all so small in the grand scheme of things? Are you able to find balance in the notion of really trying to change kids' lives, change their futures and their destinies, to change their small portion of the world when we think about the magnitude of the world around us? Well, I think that the universe has no meaning whatsoever. Is The universe is effectively meaningless. 
until humans came along and we ascribe meaning to the universe, without us, the universe would have no meaning. It's just like um, if, you're, if you're out on a hot summer day, the shade of the tree has no purpose or meaning until you enter it. And then you realize, oh, I've found relief from the heat. But that shade meant nothing to anybody until I arrived. So I, I think by uh, learning about it, you realize that um, we've learned stuff about space that uh, is some really amazingly from one small planet orbiting one small star in the corner of one galaxy. We've learned all these things. So it, it really amplifies our human ingenuity and ability to decipher information from afar and then ascribe to it meaning we really are crafting a significance of humanity just by learning about space. How's that? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm kind of blown away right now and I'm, I'm kind of floored by that. It, because you could translate that to, to so many other areas of, of life as well, aside from assigning significance. One could argue that the same is, is true when you look at individuals. Do you feel like your job is to help assign significance to individual students in your classroom? I, I have to think that part of my job is they may not realize what they're capable of, their influence on the world around them. And if, if I could show them ways that they could use things that I've taught them to go on in life, I, I like to say to them, it's not your major university, it's your mission in life that's really more important. So if I can help you uncover that, I I guess I've done my job and I've perhaps along the way shown them or helped them figure out what their significance is in, in the, the world, perhaps the universe, but certainly in the world around them. So I think so. So as, an, as a podcaster, as a blogger, as an author, you got uh, all of those things going for it. Your goal though is, isn't just to change the lives of kids. I, I feel like you also have this, this feeling as though it's your charge to also craft education and educators adults as well. What message would you give to other teachers out there who are thinking uh, about their significance and their impact and what they should be focusing on in their classrooms? Well, I think that, that's, that is very true. Um, I, I do have those desires to craft those things, not just in my students, but kind of anybody who I have an opportunity to influence if possible. Um, when, when I do get a chance to talk to teachers, I can't help but think that we have this short moment of time to be with the students. And um, we need to take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, let's teach them things that are gonna mean something to them for the long term. Uh, I, I, I don't wanna start right now weeding out aspects of the curriculum, but there are certain aspects of the curriculum that need to be weeded out because it really doesn't have lasting value. So if I can leave my students with um, pieces of information, knowledge and understanding um, and interpretation of what they see in the world around them, whether that's through a science class or a socials class or geography or even English and writing and poetry, if I can shed meaning on those things for them, then they're going to go forward with some purpose. And um, Honestly, if I can't come up with a meaning for why I teach something, I think long and hard, maybe don't even teach it.
I, I can't help but think of the, a great oper- uh, situation here, just sitting right over here behind me, um, about five or six years ago, I was teaching a lesson and it had to do with the chemistry of the oceans and it had to do with how that's affecting the coral reefs. And I thought I was doing a really good job and I, maybe I was, but this one girl, there's a grade nine class and she said, uh, Mr. Stevenson, why should I even care? And all the students in the room went, ooh, what's, she's gonna make the teacher really mad. What's gonna happen next? And I thought, well, wait a minute. You know what is an awfully good question. If I can't tell you why you should care, I need to do a better job as the teacher. Uh, because I think when you care about something, you'll be motivated to action. If you don't care, nah, this is just, it's just another lesson at school. And this is just going to perpetuate the notion that school is a drudgery and I don't want to be here and it's boring. But, but if I can tell you that not only am I going to teach you this, but it matters and you should care about this. And here's why. That's my job to convince them of that. And if I, if I do my job well, I will have convinced them of it. She challenged me. And I tell that story all the time about this one girl who, who challenged me. And, and I thought, yeah, that is a question I have to be able to answer. Why should I care? Hey, um, you're teaching me about the quadratic formula. Why should I care? Well, wait a minute. If I can tell you why you should care, and I've seen it where kids will run through glass once they understand why they why it matters and 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 it could be something it could be shakespeare it could be you know things that but if they learn about why you got to know the why why should i learn this and if you do a good job as a teacher your students will they'll they'll perform for you i'm gonna throw this out as a challenge to teachers figure out why your subject matters let alone the 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 standards or the topics, the questions you're asking, the content and curriculum you're presenting to your kids, why does your subject area matter? You know, I, I feel like for the last, probably since you and I have been in, in our careers, we've had this huge emphasis on reading and, and mathematics, rightly so, but I think we've kind of missed the mark and we've treated both of those as though they're, they're end goals, just teach kids to read so they can read, just learn math so you can learn math, as opposed so that you can apply it through civics, history, science, in all of the other aspects of life. That's the reason we want to read and learn math is so that we can apply it to these other areas that we tend to push to the side. So I will say that so you don't have to offend your, your, your teaching classmates. That was Dave Schmidt saying it. Tim's just sitting there listening right now. So, um, but with that, so, so Tim, let's get to, to the heart of this. I, I kind of hit this early on. Why do you teach what you teach? Well, what I teach is, you know, if, I, if you're just take the, the, the surface level, I mean, I teach science and space, um, but, but why do I really teach the way I teach and, and what I teach within those subject areas is because I, I see, I've, I mean, we all do. I'm not alone in this. We see lasting value in kids. And um, I think teachers who are doing, who are working at the highest level are, looking at their students individually, you know, like, for example, for example, I will, I will look at these kids and think to myself, if I was in my own class, would I be enjoying myself? Would I be rushing home to say to my parents, guess what I learned today in Mr. Stevenson's class? Or would I be at the end of the school year, would I be saying, thank goodness that's over? Or would I be saying, oh, darn it, I, there's still more I wanted to learn. 
And that becomes my goal. It, it's look, I'm not successful that all the time, but I try my hardest or I'll look at the students and say, if that kid was my son or daughter, would I be happy with what that teacher, me, is teaching them? Would, would I be happy that they're coming home saying, hey, guess what I've learned? And if I can answer those questions to myself, then, then that's what I teach. Um, and, and I use them as sort of their filters for myself to look through as I'm, as I'm dealing with these kids. And honestly, I, I got to admit, I, I am so fortunate and blessed to be a science slash astronomy teacher because I have a privilege that not everybody has. Kids like space automatically. That's not the case for every subject. And so I don't, I don't lose sight of that. I'm very aware of it, but I've also crafted that because that, you know, happy teacher, happy students, you know, like if I'm happy when I'm teaching, then they'll be happy when they're learning, you know? <laughs> but, it, but if you think about it at, at, a, at a deeper level, when you say kids just love space, space is complex. Space, if we're truly trying to understand it, involves a lot of math, a, a, a lot of chemistry, a lot of, mm-hmm. um, a lot of curiosity. And I think that's what it is about space that draws kids in is they are allowed to still be curious about it. And adults don't pretend to have all of the answers about it. It's the same thing with, with dinosaurs. Why do kids love dinosaurs? Same thing, because they're allowed to be curious about it and adults don't pretend to know everything there is about it yet. Whereas in so many other aspects of the world, we tell the kids, this is the right answer. You have to learn all the things that I know. With space, we're all just trying to figure it out. And kids yep. embrace that. So I, I love that. So let, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you just have the floor for a second before we dive into your book, because I want to talk about that a little bit. And I, I want to talk about all the things that you do beyond the classroom and beyond your space. I want you to impress me a little bit, Tim. Give me something that I can go wow my kids and my family with. So they, they think that I am the smartest guy around. Teach me something about the planets, the sun, the moon, something that whenever you teach it to the, the kids in your classroom, they're like, oh, that is so cool. What you got? Well, one, uh, sure, uh, an interesting thing that's going on right now, if, if you're in Florida and I'm in British, it doesn't matter. If you look to the southwest tonight, uh, you'll see a very bright object, and that's Jupiter. And uh, Jupiter is a gas giant, as you all know. But um, back in, in uh, 1992, uh, they, they launched the Hubble Space Telescope, and they opened up the, the, the cover, and, and the darn thing didn't work. It was nearsighted, and they had to repair it. So they did, in fact, go and repair it. And um, uh, uh, right around the time, so about 19, 1993 then, uh, there was well known that a comet named the Sh- uh, Comet Shoemaker-Levy was heading back towards the sun. And comets being mostly what we call a dirty snowball, um, mostly a rock held together by frozen water and gases, they tend to melt a little bit every time they go past the sun. And they knew that this uh, comet was breaking apart as comets will tend to do. And when they looked at the trajectory, they saw, my gosh, this thing's gonna hit Jupiter. This is gonna hit square onto Jupiter. And uh, we've got the most incredible uh, sensing piece of equipment, the Hubble Space Telescope. Let's aim it at Jupiter and watch this happen. And in came this comet and multiple impacts struck that planet um, over and over and over again. And what was mostly fascinating about that though was was the ramifications because as Jupiter rotated and Jupiter rotates as a very, very large planet but it spins about every 11 hours. Our, our, our spin is 24 hours, Jupiter is about 11. 
And um, as, it, as it spun around, the impact sites became, it came into view. And there were these bruises on the southern hemisphere of Jupiter. And each of these bruises were two and three times bigger than the planet Earth. So in other words, if that comet had instead rounded the corner and hit Earth instead of Jupiter, we wouldn't be here to talk about it. In 1994, Earth would have been obliterated. All life would have been gone, and you wouldn't be here, I wouldn't be here, and everybody on, uh, at NASA and other space agencies went, oh my gosh, we dodged a major bullet there. And as Tim, a result- did you not hear what I told you 20 minutes ago on how freaked out I get when people start talking <laughs> science to me? And this is the story you pull out? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, but what are well, you doing to me? Sorry. I, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, good point, good point. But what they came, what came about was they they developed the Near Earth Asteroid Program, and now NASA is on a, a perpetual hunt for near Earth objects and uh, potentially hazardous asteroids. And um, uh, so far, they've got none. They don't have any. There's lots out there, but there's none. This, maybe this is the saving grace for you right now. There are no asteroids or comets with an Earth-bound trajectory, uh, certainly for the next 300 years. So you'll be long gone anyway okay. uh, by the time anything hits our Earth. So the whole Bruce Willis, Ben Affleck, Billy Bob Thornton, all of that stuff is like the real deal. There's really an Armageddon deep impact group that's out there looking for these things because they want to go ride some asteroids and blow them up. Yeah, and uh, wow, it turns out blowing cool. them up is not a good idea. Okay, good to know, good to know. <laughs> do we just push them out of the way or do we just run? Like, what, what do we do? Well, you know, it's like a car accident at an intersection. If that car arrived one second sooner or one second later, there'd be no accident. So if we can get up beside it uh, with enough time, maybe 30 or 40 years, we can actually use a gravitational tug and, uh, and actually change its course even by a tiny bit. And it will whiz by either in front or behind the earth instead of hitting us. And uh, so that is, that is a, a technology that they are well aware of and are experimenting with using gravity as a, like a tugboat. That is so that, cool. It would actually work. That is cool. That is cool. All right. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go wow my kids with that one and yeah. let them call them out. First, I'm going to freak them out and then say, but don't worry about it. There's this gravity weapon. We can shoot gravity rays at it. And yeah, that'd be cool. I'm going to- Well, the very fact that you can go outside and point Jupiter out in okay. the sky. Okay. Uh, that's an interesting- What's that bright light, Dad? Well, that's Jupiter. I say, I always make it up and I'm just like, like Venus or Mars or something. I, but <laughs> Jupiter is the right answer tonight. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That helps. Yeah. That's cool. So now let's let's talk with your book a little bit, if you don't mind. I Yeah. I, I want to go there because I think it's, it's profound. It's amazing. Where did this come from? And what is the purpose of your book? Why did you write it? I, I got somehow onto this idea way back in the mid nineties that I should write about education. Um, I, I was a brand new teacher, uh, but I had some ideas and I don't know what, it, where they came from. I, I, I guess I was, I just got inspired. I don't know, but I got to writing um, and I called it the golden hour. I got up every morning for, weeks and I would just sit on the couch in the early morning hours and I'd just have a pad of paper and I would just write and then at the end of it I the thoughts kind of stopped and um, but I looked at the stack of papers that I had and I thought I think I kind of have a book here and so I wrote it up I typed it up and printed it out on my dot matrix printer and um, I there I had a book I printed a few copies I did a couple of pro d's sold one or two of them and um, then it sat, it sat on the shelf for decades. And then, um, and then I got, I've always been thinking that book needs a maker 
over. I mean, that was what I wrote at the beginning of my teaching career. Well, what do I still think from that? And what do I think differently now? And so February of 2020, I sat down with my iPad and started to, to type. And at first I was, I had the old book in, on the side and I had the computer here and I would look at them both. And then I started typing as rewriting. And as the more I did that, the more I think, well, I, a lot of my ideas have changed and they've evolved and I've got a lot more stories to tell. And so I just started to write it. And I, I thought, well, I need to put it into an order, a structure of, these are the key ideas that, gosh, I've had a pretty, I've, I've enjoyed my teaching career. I know I heard you and Marty Silverman saying, and you said 4.2 years is the average lifespan of a, not lifespan, but career span. And I thought, why have I lasted this long? And I'm going to, so that's what I wrote about. And I, I divided it into about 12 or 13 main themes that I thought, you know, these are the themes that have sustained me and propelled me to a, a fairly successful teaching career. And, and, and so I, I, they became the chapters. And, um, and, and then I just started to write. And I think that a lot of the chapters contain things that, you know, people maybe haven't really thought of before, but I think maybe they should. And so that's what I wrote about. That is so cool. I, I, I did not realize that the story of the comparison of, of the early career to now. And that, that is such an amazing a, approach to this. I'm, I'm fascinated. Mm -hmm. I'm totally fascinated. If you could pick out one big idea, typically on my podcast, I'd call it the, the mic drop moment, but I'm going to spin it a little bit for you. We're going to do the pen drop moment for you. Or maybe yeah. the, I, I don't want to drop your iPad because it'll crack. Yeah. We know how the screens work. But if you could pick out one big key idea, that you want all educators to, to walk away from? Maybe it's something that was in that book, something that you want them to, to hold on to, maybe from our talk today or something that we haven't talked about yet. What would be your mic drop, pin drop, iPad drop moment for them? Well, in fact, a lot of the things I've said already have, have come out of the book, quite frankly. But, um, you know, I think what, it, what the, the, the big idea that would, I would want people to, to remember coming out of that book is, um, is to think differently about about teaching and I think the main thing is don't ever forget that you're a human dealing with with humans uh, these are these are kids that want to be treated with respect that that want to be heard and and don't want to get into the traditional arguments that sometimes teachers and students get into I mentioned in the book at one point there's well, here, here, for example, I, I, I wrote in one chapter, I've taught long enough that I just don't care anymore. And I want, I want you to understand that this is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Um, I, I don't care if, if a student walks in the door a few minutes late, because one of two things has just happened. This is a, a, a student who never walks in the class late and probably just got tied up in traffic, maybe had to talk to a teacher. I don't know. Or it might be a student who walks in late all the time. But the fact is they walked in. And they're here. And I'm, I, I'm not going to die in that hill. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to welcome them in and say, you know, I'm good to see you. I, I, don't, get it. I don't care about that anymore. Um, I, I don't care if the bell rings and, and the class is supposed to start. Because at that moment that the bell's ringing, I might be in a conversation with a student finding out about their weekend. They're telling me something they're really excited about. And the class over here may be kind of waiting to get started. But hey, they don't mind. And I don't mind, and I've got a good conversation going on. If it takes three or four minutes out of the class, I don't really care about that because I've connected with that student and it's made their day. And I know that that student's gonna listen to my lesson real well today because we had that conversation. And if I had that opportunity on multiple occasions over the course of a school year, the more the better. So 
I think that that human element um, is is very very important, and I think it might be the reason why I've I've had some uh, I've had a few good years in the classroom. That was good stuff, man. Taught so long, I just don't care anymore. I if it's okay, I'm gonna steal that. I, I will make sure that you get all the credit, but I am gonna be using that line all the you, time right now. It's that it's profound and it's so good when you use it in that positive light that you don't care about the stuff that doesn't matter anymore. Just doesn't matter. You've taught so much. You've taught so long. You now know what's important. You know, that's so good. And and the thing is, you don't, one of the things I was trying to say by writing this book was you don't have to wait until you've taught for 28 years. You can start right now. You can start right now working with kids in a human way and developing those connections and smiling with them and uh, asking them how their day went and just sort of getting that mentality. But there's that, you know, you're coming out of university and you had to have your, 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 your qualifications had to be just so, and um, I get all that. I understand there's university requirements and education courses. I understand that, but don't ever lose sight that we're just a bunch of humans that we just want to be treated well. Um, and, and when you treat somebody well, my gosh, you know what, they listen to you and they, they want to work for you. And, um, if I then turn around and, and, and provide them with information that's interesting to learn and has future relevance, I think we just got a win, win, win situation. Blowing my mind right now, man, blowing my mind. I knew this, I knew this conversation was gonna be out of this world, but you, you just, you summed it up and wrapped it up so beautifully. Tim, I I know there are people that are listening right now. They're saying, I want to learn from this guy. I want to know more about him, his story, his journey. And I just want, I want him to feed me. So how can people connect with you? Well, um, you know, I'm on Twitter a lot at Astro Stevenson. I, I love to get um, messages. I, it, it's, anything as easy as, you know, I'm teaching a space lesson next week. How do I do? I'd love to have that conversation. I just enjoy them. I, I flat out just enjoy talking space. Um, but, uh, you know, that's an easy way to do it. And I do have an, a, a website, uh, astrostevenson.ca, and that'll get you to all my blogs and my podcasts. And um, I have a few videos up there, instructional videos, things I've spoken about. They're all there. And you can hit contact me through that. So those are those are pretty easy ways to get a hold of me. That's awesome. And for those of you that are still listening right now, all that stuff is listed in the show notes. Be an overachiever. Click on them. Check them out. Connect with this man. It is... Uh, it will be worth your time. Tim, I, I appreciate you, man. You, uh, you gave me some, some dad ammunition today so I can go out there and impress my kids. You gave me some, some ammunition as an educator, as a professional, just as a human being. I mean, I, I appreciate all that you're doing, all that you stand for, and the way that you are doing it. I, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy, busy life just to sit down and, and talk to a little old insignificant me and make me feel like I matter, man. I appreciate you. You matter. You matter. Yeah, I mean, don't forget, it's uh, you you ascribe significance everywhere you go. So don't ever lose sight of that. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for checking out this episode of the Lasting Learning Podcast. Your support means the world to me. I would love to continue to connect with you. Feel free to reach out to me at Dave Schmidto on all the things. Connect with me online at schmidto.net or shoot me an email david.schmidto at gmail.com